Growing up in Mississippi, I was not a hunter, which separated me from some of my friends because a lot of them were. I went dove hunting one time and I killed more Coke cans than doves, if you know what I'm saying. Kind of bored, just line them up on the hill and shoot them, that'd be great, with a shotgun. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not a hunter, but I was a camper, I was a scout. In fact, my passionate outdoor activity was, was canoeing, actually. And so being in Jackson, we'd hit the Strong River, we'd hit the Okatoma. Once upon a time, I hit the Spring River in Arkansas, which is a class three river, and they're like hurricanes, so one to five. So four and five is rafting Natahala, so class three. So much fun. But on those trips, one of the things that you encounter multiple occasions are these things called snakes. Right? Everybody's went, you know what I mean? So there was, one, there was one situation where we were not canoeing, we were actually tubing a really slow river somewhere in South Mississippi. I don't even remember which one it was. Maybe, it may have been the Okatoma, actually. But we were tubing, which is, I didn't like tubing as much because when you're canoeing, you have some level of control. When you're tubing, you're just trash on the river, floating down the river, <laughs> you know? And so one of my best friends from high school and I were tubing one Saturday down there, and there was this single mom and her, I don't know how old the kid was, five, six years old maybe, little girl with her. And they were tubing along, we were all kind of in a clump together going down the river. And we came to this one point where this lovely friend, water moccasin, does this thing straight across the river. And when I mean straight for us, I mean straight for us. Like we made him mad or something, you know what I mean? Like coming straight at us. Well, that snake <laughs> went right past me and my friend from high school, straight to the inner tube of the little girl. Up the side of the inner tube, straight across her stomach and kept going. The only thing the girl, little girl did was, mommy, snake, and the snake just kept right on cruising. I was stunned. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Because I don't know about you, but if a water moccasin goes up the side of your inner tube, what is your gut response going to be? Thrash, sling, dive in the water. I don't know. You're in a tube. You have no control, which, again, is why I prefer canoeing. There's a side there to stop that. You know what I mean? So this thing goes up and over. And we were talking to her like at a sandbar later or after or something. And she said, yes, I told my little girl that if she sees a snake while we're tubing to freeze and say, mommy snake. And I'm going, I am so glad you taught your daughter that instruction because, you know, that would not have been good. Because I don't know about you, that thing hits my belly. I'm like, no, you know, <laughs> like, that would have been my response. But she just like did this and that snake just kept right on going. Smart mom, smart instructions, dangerous situation, but at least she prepared her little girl for doing it, right? Her instructions combined with her little girl listening to mom, you know, because mom could have said, if you see a snake, say mommy snake. If I tell Matthew, hey, there's a snake, Matthew's going to be like, where? <laughs> right? So combined with listening to mom's instructions protected her from harm. Does that make sense? So she had instructions from mom and she listened to instructions from mom. And that's why she didn't get bit by a water moccasin in the middle of nowhere in South Mississippi, which would have been terrible. Well, we're coming to the end of a series. We've been walking through... First Peter, from a theological, it's not verse by verse through the whole book. We've done the whole book in like four weeks because we're taking major theological themes of Peter and chunking them like that and kind of going through it. 
And so we talked about the fact that Peter says our identity is found in Christ. We talked about the fact that, the, that because we follow Jesus, that will automatically set us as strangers and aliens in opposition to the world on some level. That if we follow Jesus, our values by default won't always match with society. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it won't. But when it doesn't, you will also receive persecution for those beliefs. And we talked about, like, ironically, we talked last week, I think, about persecution. And several of you walked outside, had, car t- had t- parking tickets for parking outside a church. I didn't arrange that ahead of time, I promise. <laughs> that was not a sermon illustration set up, okay? They, they know they're supposed to let the Christians park down here on Sunday, but it didn't happen that way. But we talked about persecution and the fact that we don't quite fit with the world's values means we might be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And so Peter's writing this letter to a group of, Christ, group of Christians, Jewish Christians scattered all over the place. And he's telling them this stuff and teaching them this stuff. And his logical progression is identity separates you. You'll be persecuted. So today we're going to talk about a, a playbook that he puts in verse chapter 5 for how to live in the context of that persecution and separation. A way for the body itself, the body of Christ itself, to endure in the face of challenge. He gives a playbook, if you will, and we're going to talk about that as he includes. So, he's, for us this morning, Peter is mom telling us to say mommy snake. Are you with me? <laughs> There's your metaphor for the morning, right? So turn with me to chapter 1 Peter chapter 5. And we're going to read the first five verses to start with. Now, as an elder myself, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God. That is your, that is, the flock of God that is your charge, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Okay, so Peter, being an elder, in fact, in verse 1, he says, hey, I'm an elder too. I am like you guys. I have a flock that I am shepherding. But as like that, here's what you are to do. So he's identifying with them. He's relating to them. He's saying, hey, I'm one of you guys too. And he exhorts a group of elders. Now, this is not just older people when it says elders. Okay, this is not Oh man, I need my handicap pass to get some. This is not, that's not what he means by elder, all right? This is not just mom and dad and junior. This is elder as in shepherds of the church. Now, if you think about it, it would make complete sense for Peter to use a shepherd metaphor for how the church is to be structured. Because if you remember the story, Jesus, Peter denies Jesus on his, the night of his execution, his trial, and all that kind of stuff, and he denies him three times. After Jesus is resurrected and on the beach and they're having breakfast, he, offer, he offers Peter, he says three times, do you love me? To which Peter responds, of course I do. Number two, do you love me? Yes, I do. you know I do. By the third time, he's a little anxious because Jesus is asking three times. 
But each time he asked him, and Peter responded, do you love me? He said something like, tend my sheep, feed my flock. In other words, Peter is not pulling this structured metaphor out of the air. He is following the instructions from Jesus himself when he says, our elders, our church leadership are meant to be shepherds. Now, if you know anything about shepherds, what's the shepherd supposed to do? Protect the flock. Right? So this, you drop this into the context of when you identify with Christ, you will be separate from the world. You will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It will cost you something. And when you are persecuted, elders, I am exhorting you to protect and care for the flock. In other words, the church leadership is meant to protect the church body from persecution from the outside world, from wrong teaching, from you name it, from anything that threatens the gathered flock of Jesus. Tend the flock. Feed my sheep. Then he gives, some, he gives three quick ways. He's, like, he's almost like, here's how, here's how, here's how I want you to do this. You notice he says, not under compulsion, but willingly. And why would a church leader kind of be hesitant about being a church leader. I just told you, in Peter's day, to call yourself Christian, to not participate in the religion of the culture, to not sacrifice to the gods of this city or the gods of that city, puts you in diametric opposition to the authorities. The Roman sayings of the day were, there is no other god but Caesar. To proclaim Jesus as Lord was a statement of treason. To call yourself a leader of people who proclaim Jesus is Lord is leader of what? A rebellion, essentially. Right? You're influencing a group of other people to disavow Caesar as Lord. So in other words, to call yourself an elder in the church was to put a particular target on your back as far as Rome is concerned. There were more stakes, if you will. In other words, if you're going to be persecuted for righteousness sake and for, you're going to suffer like Jesus as a church member, then the leaders of church members even more so. Because if Rome is going to stop a church, who are they going to make sure they take out? The leaders, right? So he says, be an elder, not grudgingly, but willingly engage in your charge. Then he qualifies it, and he said this in a letter for today. He says, not for sordid gain. Not so you can build a mega mansion on the side of the hill as a pastor. All right? By the way, I don't have one. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, in other words, not become, you don't become a church leader to collect your percentage of the tithe and build your bank account. Right? Anytime Peter implies this stuff or one of the pastoral letters, like Paul instructs a certain thing to go a certain way, the immediate implication is there must have been people doing the opposite. So there were pastors, elders, that were benefiting financially from being an elder. He says, that's not your reason for jumping into that spot. He's also saying, you should have courage when you do it, and do it not grudgingly because it might cost you something, but actually engage in the process willingly. Then he says, and we need to hear this one sometimes too, don't lord your position of authority over the people you have authority over. An elder is not a king. 
He doesn't tell you how to live. By the way, even when I preach, I'm not the one telling you how to live. This is, right? God is telling you how to follow God. The Holy Spirit prompts you to understand the scripture when you read it for yourself. I, I'm a limited dude doing an interpretation of what I see. Test anything I have by that book, okay? But if they were like, okay, you're not a Christian if you don't dot this I and cross this T. Or bring me, your, bring me twice your tithe because you didn't tithe for the last two months. Like, don't lord your authority over them. I don't know what they were doing. I'm just coming up with random examples off the top of my head, right? Don't you, I'm a pastor, therefore you must do it. That's what, that's what he's talking about. I talked about last week, it's like, when somebody says a cuss word in front of me, they're like, sorry, preacher, you know, because my presence is an automatic, like, oops. <laughs> you know, that's between you and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, okay? But I'm also not going to use this position to make you do stuff for my benefit. Remember, this is on the heels of don't be a pastor for gain. I can see a pastor going, oh, oh, I know you're supposed to tie to the church, but we also have a commission where you pay the pastor this on top of that. And he's making it up off the top of the side of his head. I guess that means I have to give my salary up. I don't know. But you understand what I'm saying, right? You can't use your authority. Professionals in our society have that problem. A counselor can't take advantage of a client. A real estate professional can't take advantage of somebody trying to sell their home. There's, we call it ethical standards, right? Medical doctors have ethical standards for what it means to be a doctor. And when somebody violates those standards, they get into something the counseling world calls a dual relationship. I'm your pastor and I'm your friend, right? If you're parents, you understand this. I'm your mom, but I'm your bud. And if you go too far towards bud, what happens? Nothing, because they won't do anything you ask them to do, <laughs> right? But you have to be mom and you have to have a relationship. But we wear multiple hats and we have multiple relationships. But if I'm pastor, I don't get to walk around as pastor and going, I think you should do this. I think you should do that. I think you should do this. That's not preaching. I'm talking about bossing, right? Because God, Peter, is instructing the church on how to live. He says, don't do it willingly. Don't do it for gain. And don't lord your position over. Then he says, he makes them, he makes the elders a promise. If you do this, you'll get your gold crown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you will get a crown that will not tarnish, verse 4 says, ever. So an imperishable reward is there for living in that place. Now, there's other passages that talk about the fact that if you are a pastor, if you are a Bible teacher, you have an extra level of responsibility because of what you know where God's concerned. With great power comes great responsibility. See the Spider-Man movies. <laughs> right? Because we're in a position of authority as an elder, we have an additional responsibility before God. In other words, part of that integrity relationship is for me not to go make up my own religion and come here and preach it. Does that make sense? Because God would judge me for misleading you. So I have to be a careful steward of what I preach. Now, I'm not a script preacher, so I don't write it out ahead of time. I have an outline. Sometimes I might say something I'll regret saying later, but that's because I'm not perfect, okay? <laughs> and call me on it. I'm good. I'm teachable. I promise I'll mess up at some point. But it won't be because I'm trying to mislead you. Does that make sense? He promises a reward. And then just in case you think, oh, man, the elders have all the responsibility. 
They can't do it for gain. They can't exert that authority for all, and lord it over us. Sweet, we can do what we want. Verse 5. <laughs> those of you who are younger. Now, it's elder and younger. So the implication of the passage is those under the authority of the elders. That's everybody else who's not an elder. Submit to the authority that's been placed over you. Right? Let me read verse 5 again. I want to get the wording right. He says, In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you, all of you. So he says, those who are under elders must accept their authority. Elders and everybody else, therefore, must clothe yourself in humility in your dealings with one another. Because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So he says, first he says, those of you under authority, your pastors are there to protect you. Remember, they're the shepherds. Remember the metaphor? It's our job to steward, shepherd, protect the flock from heresy, from threats, from division, from everything else that's going on. It's our job. And sometimes that job is extremely difficult because you're not listening to verse 5. <laughs> In other words, you must, we have to be under that authority. God set it up that way with shepherds and sheep to protect the sheep. To protect the church. And hand in hand with that is the sheep have to actually listen to the shepherd. Otherwise, it's not good. But then he says, both of you fulfill that role with humility towards one another. It's no accident that Paul gets, gets so excited talking about his relationship with God that he starts to compare it to a relationship between a husband and a wife, and he's talking about mutual submission and who can submit the most, not who can lord it over and so-and-so must submit. But it's like, submit yourselves one to another. Da, da, da. I'm talking about marriage, but I get it confused. I'm really talking about relationship with God. Peter's kind of doing the same thing. He set the structure up. He's like, it is a mutual submission. Pastors aren't perfect. Me included. So we're in this together, and he's, he's called some to be shepherds to steward the flock, and the flock is supposed to listen, and you're supposed to do that with mutual humility and submission towards one another. The pastor is supposed to be willing to die the way Christ is willing to die for the church, for the sake of the church, to be a servant leader, not lorded over. That was in the passage we just read. <laughs> Personal example. Literally blow an eye, pulling off exams lamb, okay? Like the pastor is supposed to serve the church sacrificially. Why? He quotes Proverbs 3.34. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to those who are humble. Now, why would he, why would he throw that quote in there? A proud pastor is going to get opposed, right? Proud sheep are going to be in trouble. <laughs> if you're not listening to your pastor because you've got it all figured out. Verse 5. Right? With humility, submit to your authority. Pastors, elders, don't lord it over. But with humility, serve your church and your flock and protect and feed my sheep, to quote Peter, Jesus to Peter. So he's setting up this playbook in the first half and he says... This is the structure. Some are elders. And by the way, you notice this. He says, elders among you. At this stage in church history, 
We're not talking about structured gatherings. We're not talking about everybody coming to the temple at this point. In fact, they're dispersed. This letter is written to Christians all over the Mediterranean. So he's not talking to First Church of Starkville. He's talking to Christians reading this. And he says, to elders among you, which implies whatever group is gathered in this town and whatever little group is in this house or whatever, whoever the elders are among you, that's who this applies to. It's fluid. Each little church group has their spiritual leaders that God has raised up to guide them. That's who we're instructing. This is not a powerful hierarchy passage. This is how this group of Christians will survive everything I've been talking to you about for four chapters. You with me? Now, after he says be humble, look at verse 6. I think I may have read 6 a minute ago. If I did, I'm going to read it again. Ah, see? Okay, so he says... God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Then in verse 6 he says this, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you in due time. Cast all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert, like a roaring lion in your... In your, at your no, let me back up. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of, of suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish, establish you. To Him be the power forever and ever. Okay, so the first half of the chapter... He lays out the understanding and expectations of shepherds, how they're supposed to operate, sheep, how you're supposed to submit. Then he looks at all of them and says, okay, now that you're under that structure, here is how you live in the face of persecution because you identify with Christ. Humble yourselves, not to your pastor, but to who? The mighty hand of God. Now that phrase is particular. That phrase, the mighty hand of God, is the same way God is referred to by the people of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament. God did this, and the mighty hand of God pushed back the sea of the Red Sea. The mighty hand of God provided man. That phrase comes all through Exodus. If you know your Bible, then you know a group of Israelites in the desert trying to survive on the way to the promised land is a group of followers of God under extreme duress, persecution, and threat from being in the wilderness, as the metaphor. And Peter uses that phrase to talk about the God who is guiding them that we're supposed to be humble to in the face of persecution. That's no accident. If God carried the Israelites through the desert, submit yourselves to the mighty hand of God when you face persecution for righteousness' sake. He's drawing on the same imagery. He's drawing on the same idea that no matter what your body of Christ, your people, your family, your friends, your Christian friends are going through, submit yourself to the mighty hand of God. Cast all of your anxiety on Him. It's almost like he's quoting Paul. <laughs> right? Put all, if you're going to submit to God, the mighty hand of God, and you're going to trust Him to protect you, not don't worry, submit your worry. Do you understand the difference? You're going to be anxious. If you're, in the if you're in the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land, you're going to be anxious. If you're under persecution and you're worried they're going to drag you out and execute you because you're a first century Christian, you're going to be anxious. He doesn't say, don't worry. He says, place your worries in the hands of the mighty hand of God. 
when you have them, surrender them. It's another expression of humility. He says, humble yourself before God. Cast your worry in front of Him. It's not that you don't experience it. It is part of the surrender. The humility is not just surrendering your will. It's also surrendering your worry. Are you with me? It's not just, okay, now I'm going to do what you tell me to do, God, but I'm going to worry about it the whole time. (laughs) It is, I will follow you, and then whatever's going on out there that's caused me to worry, I trust you with that too, because Jesus is the ultimate shepherd, right? Who laid down his life for the flock. Cast all your anxiety on him. He cares for you. Lay it at his feet. Verse 8, discipline yourself. Stay alert, for the enemy is seeking you like a lion. That's like a famous metaphor from Scripture. That the enemy would be roving around like a lion looking for its next meal. Might be a little on the nose, Peter, if Nero is throwing you to lions. I'm just saying. But Nero's not there yet. So the idea is this. The enemy is looking to trip you up. The enemy is looking... To, why would the enemy be concerned about the church? For obvious reasons, right? If a church is following the shepherd and doing what it's supposed to and glorifying God and all that they do, then that church is going to grow. Of course the enemy wants to disrupt that. So he says, discipline yourself. Be alert. Look for that. Persecution, strife, challenge, they all serve to test our commitment. If suddenly being a Christian is going to cost you something, that's when, non, that's when sort of Christians kind of go, you know, maybe I'll sleep in next Sunday. If following Jesus is really going to cost you career, family, friends, parking ticket out front of connection, if it's going to cost you something, you might actually start to go, you know, I I was kind of committed. but In other words, it sorts out who's really in the flock. It just does. But the enemy would love to split the actual flock itself. To cause division, to cause disruption, to cause pain, to cause anger, to cause each other not to be humble towards each other, but to be angry towards each other. And the enemy would love to disrupt a flock that's like that. Verse 9, he says, resist temptation. Then he he tries to encourage me. He turns it toward encouragement. Wrap it up. He goes, resist temptation because understand this. Discipline yourself. Understand this. You are not alone. He says in verse 9, there are Christians throughout the world facing the same struggle you are. Remember, his letter is to a group of Christians that are scattered. If you're one of five who finally got a copy of the letter and you think you're the only five Christians left, then what does the letter tell you? You're not alone in this. You're not the only ones getting persecuted. You're not the only ones that need the mighty hand of God. We all are enduring it. He started the section with going, like you, I'm one of you. I've been faced with this too. You're not alone. Then verse 10, 11. I want to read those because they're such incredible words and we need to hear them. Um, because this is, this is the beauty sometimes of the Bible itself. Sometimes you just need to hear the Bible to tell you it's going to be okay. <laughs> right? Especially when you think it's not going to be. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the power 
forever and ever. What's Peter's promise as he's coming to the end of his letter? You belong to Christ. It separates you out. You'll be persecuted. Here's how you live under that persecution. But he promises something. The persecution will end. There will come a day when the great shepherd returns where there will be no more sorrow, no more death. It's our living hope. After a while, it will be over. Because God Himself, the one who has called you to glory, will restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. You could almost read that to yourself every morning. After a little season you're in now, God of grace will restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. We have this tendency when it comes to our life in Christ. We bottle up the gospel as, I was a sinner, now I'm not because I accepted Jesus. And we go on with our life. It's a natural tendency, it's a human tendency, I understand it, I get it. But there's, the gospel is richer than that. You were made in the image of God. Created for works as a masterpiece, Ephesians 2.10. Sin messed that up, that's true. And we know that part. I don't have to preach that one right now. Anybody perfect? Yeah, exactly. Christ redeemed us by what he did. And we have faith that creates that restoration in our life, right? But that's not the end of the Christian story. That is the beginning. Actually, that's not even the beginning of the spiritual journey. The spiritual journey began when he conceived you and created you in the first place. There's nobody who's not on a spiritual journey. Maybe they haven't said yes to Jesus yet. Maybe they did a long time ago. Maybe they just did. Everybody is on a spiritual journey somewhere. And it doesn't stop with, I've got my fire insurance, sweet. <laughs> because the fourth part of this is, God will redeem, restore, establish, and support you. You're created by God, distorted by sin, redeemed by Jesus, and restored. Restored, redeemed, and restored. There are multiple passages in Scripture where God says, I have not finished I have not given up on the work I set apart to do for you in the first place. I will reconcile all things to myself. I will return and there will be no more tears, no more suffering. There's restoration after redemption. And we forget that part. And we participate with God in that restoration process. And that means that no matter what is challenging the church, no matter what is facing the church, no matter what is facing you Personally, you get to rest in the promise. We always forget that salvation doesn't stop with our decision to follow Him, but that God is in the business of restoring you to beyond what you could hope or imagine. And that is our living hope. He's not done with you yet. He's not done with your family yet. He's not done with your friends yet. He's not done with your church yet. Let's pray. Most holy God, we confess that we need that encouragement, restoration, support. We confess that apart from you, we can do nothing. We confess that we need you as our great shepherd. Or we call ourselves followers of you, we know that costs us something. But you've also promised us that we have eternal 
living hope in you. And this morning we rest in that hope. In Jesus' precious name.